Open your Bibles to Psalm 114, 114. Tonight's message is God's power and majesty in the Exodus. Now this psalm celebrates Israel's deliverance from Egypt when God sent Moses to deliver them from the slavery of Egypt, the power of Egypt. There is a a kind of a light and lively mood, an energetic mood in this psalm, which kind of balances out the heavier and stronger doctrine in the first psalm of deliverance in Exodus chapter 15. And this psalm is read along with Psalm 113 at Passover before the Passover dinner is served. Now, this psalm has three movements or actions or activities. First of all, there's a celebration of Israel's redemption from Egypt in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, there's a description of Israel's enemies in verses 3 through 6. And then there's a celebration of the Lord who redeemed Israel in verses 7 through 8. Again, it's a, it's a short psalm, obviously, but it has a lot to say about, again, the majesty and the power of God in his deliverance uh, from his people in, uh, in the Exodus. The theme, the mighty God who del- delivered Israel from Egypt. We can celebrate God's great work in our life today. We really can. You know, we, many times we, we, we read the scriptures, Old and New Testament, and wherever you are, and, 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 and you know, you, you read about the, man, the, the awesome things that God did, the, the, the miracles and the, the great deliverances and the victory over God's uh, uh, people's enemies. And you go, man, that must have been neat to see. That must have been a great time. You know, I wish I could have been there or I could have seen, could see something like that. All you have to do is just, just stop and think for a moment and look over your life about all the times that God intervened in your life. You may not have had a Red Sea experience or, you know, an experience like crossing the Jordan or, or, you know, or manna raining down from heaven. But you know what? God's done a lot of things for us in our life. And if we would just stop and think for a moment about all the times God intervened for us, I mean, we would be blown away. The author of this psalm is anonymous. We don't know who it is. Psalms 113 through 118 were called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And they were used at the feasts of the Passover, the feasts of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Dedication. And it seems that they were sung, that these psalms were sung during the time that the Passover was being celebrated. Now, some Bible scholars think that three of them were sung at the beginning and three were sung at the end. Others think they were sung from time to time during the Passover feast. Psalm 114 is an exhortation to praise the wonderful God who we have been studying in Psalm 112 and 113. But you know, it's an exhortation to praise God, but we shouldn't need an exhortation to praise God. You know, again, when we look look back at all the things that God has done for us, I mean, praise should just be flowing, just pouring automatically out of our lips to God. Psalm 113, for example, he's the creator. He's the Redeemer, and He will be the Redeemer of creation. Because of this, we're to praise God. The Hallel Psalms or the praise Psalms are for the purpose of praising God. And as I said, this psalm looks back to the time when Israel was delivered from Egypt. So look at, let's look at Psalm 114, beginning with verses 1 and 2. And the psalmist said, When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob 
From a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. Now these newly freed slaves that left Egypt in the Exodus, they, still, they were still refusing the strange language of their long-term captors, those who you know, held them in captivity. With this sight, or I should say with this slight, Israel affirmed true values in life were not to be found in the glories of Egypt. Again, remember, Egypt is always a type of the world. But our glories are to be found in the presence of the Lord. When Abraham first went into the promised land, he was a stranger. And God told him that his people would, uh, would go down to the land of Egypt where they'd become a nation. Israel started as a nation in Egypt. And that's where anti-Semitism was born in Egypt. They hated the Jews. The Bible tells us about their sufferings and their hardships their persecutions, and their troubles that they experienced in Egypt. Then God remembered his covenant with them in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. He, it says that he heard their cry. It says he looked upon the children of Israel, and he had respect for them. And God delivered them from Egypt, and this psalm starts with the wilderness march. Verse 1, it says, notice, when Israel went out of Egypt... When they began their journey out of the land of Egypt, Israel was so excited to come out of Egypt. And imagine so, they'd been, in, they'd been you know, enslaved there for hundreds of years. So they were excited when they came out of Egypt. And out of the population among whom they had been scattered, and from under the yoke of bondage, and from under the personal control of the king who had made them slaves, that's why they were so happy. Israel came out with an overconfident and stretched out arm defying all the power of Egypt and making Egypt suffer big time for what they did to them as the chosen nation was born when they left the land of Egypt. The second part of verse 1 says, notice the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. They went down to Egypt as a single family, the house of Jacob. And even though they multiplied quite a bit, they were still very united people. And they were totally looked at by God as a single unit. They were looked at as one, one people. That they're correctly spoken of as the house of Jacob. In other words, they were like one man. Like one man in their willingness to leave Goshen. And even though there was a lot of them, not one person stayed behind. Unity is seen here. And unity is so satisfying. It's a satisfying sign of God's presence. One of their many inconveniences in Egypt was the difference of languages. The Israelites seems to have thought of the Egyptians as stutterers and babblers because they couldn't understand them. So they naturally thought that the Egyptians were barbarians and that they were no doubt often beaten because they couldn't understand their orders. I mean, they couldn't do what they were told or understand because they didn't know the language. So they most no, no, doubtly, no doubt they were beaten because of that. Let's look at verse 2 now. Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion or his kingdom. Now this verse anticipates, speaks forward and future towards the New Testament sense of God living among his people rather than in a shrine. In Ezekiel 37 verse 26 through 27, it says, Moreover, God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. 
I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they will be my people. God is now talking about the whole nation of Israel being a tabernacle. God's original plan was that Israel would be a nation of priests, not just one tribe, which means they were to be priests for the whole world. The names Judah and Israel here, they aren't meant to mean here the two separated parts of the nation like it was after the split of the northern and southern kingdoms during the the reign of King Rehoboam. They're two names for the one people that came out of Egypt at the Exodus. But this one people is said to be both God's sanctuary and God's kingdom. Remember when God came down at Mount Sinai? That, that, that then was a, symbol, a symbolic picture of his residence. All right? When God came down at Sinai, uh, it took up a, he took up a symbolic residence, remember, in the form of the Shekinah glory. That cloud that filled the wilderness tabernacle. And later on, it filled Solomon's temple uh, in Jerusalem. Also, Israel was literally God's sanctuary or holy place. It was a place that was set apart by God's presence. And because God came to be among his people and also rule his people, the nation became his private kingdom. No nation but Israel was ever a theocracy led by God, ruled by God. A nation ruled directly by God. Israel's experience was a fulfillment of what God promised them at Sinai. Exodus 19, 6. He said, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, he said, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And even though no other nation has ever been set up to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, there is a people that has been set up to be a holy and that people is the church us the people of god we are made god's sanctuary and kingdom by his presence in our midst peter referred to god's people like this in his first letter thinking of exodus 19 6 and maybe psalm 114 2 peter wrote this in first peter 2 9 he wrote about the church and he said but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So how do we, the church, become God's sanctuary and kingdom? We become a royal priesthood. Because you see, it's the presence of God in the Holy Spirit, in the heart and the life of every Christian. We are a royal priesthood, again, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our heart, in the life of every Christian. We become a dominion. That is, we become his kingdom because of Jesus' rule over us as king. Also, a royal priesthood. That's how we become his kingdom. Jesus Christ is the great priest, our great high priest, we're told. Because he sacrificed himself for us. He became the sacrifice and the priest who offered the sacrifice. And he continues to be our great high priest in heaven. How? By interceding for us at the throne of God. We have an example of Christ's work when he interceded for Peter. And we all know the story. Peter had boasted, Lord, even if all the other disciples forsake you, oh, I will never forsake you. I'll stand by you through thick and thin, Lord. I'll be faithful to you no matter what happens. I'll even die for you. But Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, 
I can hear that. Oh, poor Peter. Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Later that same evening, Peter got all freaked out when Jesus got arrested in the garden, remember? And when he denied him three times, when he was confronted by the high priest in the courtyard. But you know, his faith didn't fail. When Peter realized what he had done, he was so ashamed. And he wept bitterly, the scripture says. He was humbled. And after that, he was a much different man when he bowed before the Lord in Galilee. And he was restored and he was reinstated to service by Jesus. I mean, it's a beautiful picture of what the Lord God does. It's because you and I are members of the church and can pray for others that we are priests. Now, we can't offer our lives for other people's salvation like Jesus did. Because only he, as we learned this morning again, he's the only savior. He's the only savior. But we can pray for others and we can be heard like Jesus was. We can also offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices, as Paul said we're to do. Which is what Paul insisted on we are to do in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And this is how, like Israel, we are God's sanctuary as well. We're also a holy nation. This is how we become his kingdom. We're a holy nation. We're also a nation of those in whom Christ rules. Revelation 5.10, John said, And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. How can we reign? By serving other people. Because that's how Jesus rules among us. He doesn't lord over us like a tyrant, like a dictator. Instead, he works for our good, for our benefit. Again, our, our, our interest is, is at, the, at his heart, you know? Our best interests are his main concern for us. Our rule is a responsibility to, other pe- to serve other people. Verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The little hills like lambs. In four lines here. We have the whole wilderness experience after the people left Egypt. The first line, it says, notice, the sea saw it and fled. The sea saw it. This speaks of the parting of the Red Sea at the beginning of the journey when the people were still being chased by the Egyptians. When Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, we read that a strong east wind kicked up and it started to blow. It held back the sea. And it says that the bottom of the sea became like dry land. And God's people marched across that dry land. And remember, the people crossed over it in the morning. And after they crossed, the wind stopped and the sea returned. And Pharaoh's armies who were chasing the Israelites were drowned in the sea. And when that Red Sea closed back up, symbolically it said to the people of Israel, you are never to go back. I brought you out of Egypt. Like God brought us out of the world. It's a type of the world. Remember, we're never to go back. And so when God closed up the Red Sea, it was saying, you're never to return. The second line we see here in these verses is Jordan turned back. The second line in verse 3, it says Jordan turned back. This refers to the Jordan River. When he held back the waters of the Jordan River so that the people could pass into Canaan at the end of their wilderness journey, their wilderness years. The last two lines, notice it says, the mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs in verse 4. 
This refers to the trembling of the earth when God came down on Mount Sinai to give the people His law. Listen to Exodus 19, 18-20. It says, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Hebrews 12, 21 says, The sight was so terrifying to Moses. I mean, he was so scared by what he was experiencing. He says, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Now, what could have caused the earth to shake so terribly, so violently? The, what, what, would, what could cause the Red Sea to part? What could cause the Jordan River to reverse its flow and the mountaintops of Sinai to tremble so violently? Well, these questions are answered in verses 5 through 6. Let's look what it has to say. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains, that you skipped like rams? O little hills like lambs? These verses are connected to one long question. What could have caused the Red Sea to part? the Jordan to turn back, the mountains to tremble, and the psalmist asks. But he knows the answer. Look at verses 7 through 8. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. So it was the presence of the Lord that caused this trembling, this, this violent trembling. He said, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence, notice, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. So the trembling, this great trembling was caused by the presence of the Lord, the presence of the God of Jacob. Oceans, rivers, the wind, mountains, planets, and all of creation move only in the presence of their creator. So it was God alone who brought his people out of Egypt, verse 1 says. And in verse 8 it says, he's the one who turned the, the rock into a pool of water. This here now is the high point of the psalm. In the New Testament, Christians have a great counterpart of this psalm in Romans 8, referring to the believer's security in Christ. The psalmist has asked the question, if God is for his people, who or what possibly can stand against them? The answer is nothing and no one. Not oceans, not rivers, winds, mountains. Paul finishes describing the gospel message by asking Romans 8, 31 through 39. He said, what then shall we say to these things? That if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes Christians are accused of being unrealistic about life. Oh, you can't, you know, it, you know, it, it, nothing bothers, you know, there, there's nothing wrong. And as if it was nothing more than just good times for them. But that wasn't true of Paul. 
When Paul wrote that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, he wasn't closing his eyes to reality. He wasn't shutting his ears to the hostile, hostile and destructive things that are around us. You know, we don't, you know, we, we're not unrealistic about life. We have difficulties. We do have problems. It isn't a cakewalk. We read that this morning in our study. That the road on that, uh, through the inner gate, that, that narrow gate, when we got on that narrow road, that it was a rough road to walk. But if Satan's always trying to get us off of that narrow road, offering these little trinkets of the world, go here to go there. Trials and tribulations, everything that he can throw at us is to get us to get off of that narrow road and onto the road to destruction. So again, you know, we, we can't be unrealistic about life. There are difficulties. And like I said, when Paul wrote that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, he wasn't saying that, you know, hey, there's no problems and you know, there's not going to be any difficulty. He wasn't, he wasn't closing his ears to the, to the hostile and destructive things that, that, that we encounter in life. It was quite the opposite. He, you know what? He welcomed these forces. He invited them to come. That's the kind of man Paul was. Paul was saying, bring it on. You know why? There's nothing that I can't deal with when God is with me, when, I, when he's present with me. He said, it doesn't matter what it is. He says, because those things will never defeat God or succeed in separating me from God's love in Christ Jesus. What are those forces that come against us? Well, Paul gives them to us in verse 7. Notice verse 7 again. Tremble, O Lord, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water and then flint into a fountain of waters. Even though they're powerful forces, these forces that he mentioned here in verse 7, even though they're powerful forces, all of them are going to bow down one day before the presence of the Lord. First of all, what are some of the forces that come against us in our life that try to take us off of that narrow road? How about tribulation? Problems in life, difficulties that we experience. The word tribulation means, to, it means being pressed down by life and sometimes life just presses on us so hard. Trying to squash us like a bug. It presses down on us so hard that, that we feel crushed by life. You may have experienced tribulation. Maybe not, but you will. Because that's one of those promises that we don't underline in our Bible. You will you will experience many tribulations. Jesus said you will have tribulation in this world. So it's, a, it's just a matter of when. You may have been abused as a child. You may have lost your job or deprived of a husband or a wife or suffered severe illnesses. Paul says no tribulation, no matter how severe it might be, will separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. A second hardship, a second thing that, that you know, can, can cause us to, to, to get off of that straight and narrow road is distress, hardship. This is, just, this is a little bit different than trouble. This, this speaks of narrowness of room. And doesn't it sometimes we feel like we're boxed in? The idea is being confined by life. It might be like a man or a woman in a dead-end job. You know, your job seemed promising. You know, you've ex- you, you expected a promising career. You know, maybe you, you went to college and you got a degree in, in your field of, of, of work. 
You hope to be promoted, but then you get passed by. Not once, not twice. You got passed by several times. The future's not looking good at all for you. You aren't getting any younger, and it's getting harder and harder to make ends meet for your family. And you'd like to get out of these confining circumstances. You'd like to get out of this corner that you feel boxed in. Or maybe the woman with two or three children that demands so much of her, who has to live on a rather skimpy budget and knows there's no relief in sight for her everyday life, you know, and needs. Maybe from her everyday life of school, grocery shopping, paying bills, babysitters, other signs of a confining family life. How does somebody get victory over these kinds of dead-end or confining experiences and circumstances? It's realizing that God has set His love on you and nothing is ever going to separate, separate you from His love. You might be in a tight situation right now. You might be in a, having difficult circumstances right now. But understand, you are an heir to heaven. And one day, your hopes are going to be as huge as the universe and as infinite as the galaxies, and nothing will rob you of this future. The third thing, these, the third force, one of the third forces, the third force that can take away or, 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 or comes against us to take away, you know, our, our, our walk off of this narrow path to life is persecution. Persecution means relentless attempts to do you harm. Now, not many of us suffer persecution today like Paul did or many of the Christians in his day. Even though Christians in other parts of the world do go through those kinds of persecutions. But there are minor persecutions, often minor persecutions. And, and, and the way that things are looking and we, we're seeing things, these will probably become stronger and stronger and more obvious if things continue in the world the way they are today. You know, one of the candidates for president said he's going to take away our, our tax exempt status. That's just one of the another attacks. If we don't change our, our, our view on homosexuality. That's what he said. We can be sure of two things about persecution. First, they are a normal response to any true Christian witness or stand. And second, we will experience them based on how much we confront the world with the gospel. Jesus said in John 16, 33, and I already shared it with, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Persecutions might separate us from our money. They might separate us from our job. They might separate us from our belongings. All you have to do is look at Hebrews chapter 11 at the heroes of faith. Man, they lost homes. They lost family. They lost everything. And they ended up wandering out in the desert with nothing. But they saw and they understood a great future, a great hope that they had. Like I said, persecutions might separate us from our money, from our job, from our belongings, our social status. But it will never separate us from Christ's love. The fourth force that comes against us, trying to, again, take us off of that straight and narrow path, is famine. People experience famine in Bible times in ways we don't know of today. And in Africa today, there's hunger today like you've never experienced, like you've never seen. But not even that can separate us from the love of Christ. A fifth fourth force that comes against us to rob us, to, to, to get us to detour from the straight and narrow path is nakedness. Now, th- this, this, this meant being so poor that a person couldn't buy clothes that they needed. And it's kind of a, a, a 
parallel term or corresponding term to famine. And like it may refer to economic hard times as the result of natural disasters or war. There's a sixth force, a sixth force that comes against us in trying to rob us. Again, of, of, the, of Christ's love. Danger. Peril. And it, danger comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. But the focus here is on dangers that Christians are exposed to just for the simple reason you're a Christian. In some places, Christians are arrested. And they're put on trial. And they're put in prison. In other places, they're attacked, they're beaten, and even killed. A seventh peril, I'm sorry, a seventh force that comes against us in trying to separate us from the love of God is the sword. This speaks of Christians being killed or executed for their faith. If God wasn't our protector, even today in America, this would happen. But it's God's providence, it's God's good hand upon us that stops these kinds of injuries or overrules events for the protection of his people. So when we see these many dangers, these many forces that are coming against us, the many toils and the many traps that, that, that come into the lives of Christians, how can, it that Paul, how can Paul say, hey, there's nothing that can separate us from Christ's love? How, how can he say that? It's because of, it's because of God. <laughs> it's because of who he is. It's because of the nature of God's covenant love to his, for his people. And when we look at that power, and when we, in, in view of that power and his steadfast love, we can look at the troubles of this, this life and we can cry out confidently and boldly like Paul. We are hard pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, we might think we're at our wit's end. I mean, I'm at the end of my rope. We may not be able to see any light at the end of the tunnel. Our flimsy little bodies are subject to sin. They're, suffering, they're, they're subject to sickness and to suffering. But God never abandons us. Because Jesus has won the victory over death. Because he has won the victory over death, we have eternal life. All of our risks all of our humiliations, all of our trials, they're just opportunities for Jesus to show us His power and His presence in and through us. Ask yourself, could I handle the suffering and the opposition that Paul did? All the hype about success is a big enemy of effective ministry. Growth Numbers, we talked a little bit about it today. Growth, numbers, big buildings, big budgets, and so on. In the view of many, this is the evidence of success. God, has, God is not impressed with numbers and size. He's impressed with faithfulness. You see, it has a lot to do with your expectations. Is this how you measure success? Big numbers, big buildings, growth. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 62, 5. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. There's where our expectation should be centered. Because if you expect 
things from people, many, many times you will be disappointed. You will be hurt. But the psalmist said, my expectation is from him. My soul waits silently alone for God. My expectation is not in man. I am not called to be successful. I'm not called to be brilliant. I've been called to be faithful. And that's how God is going to judge me in the end. He's not going to say, hey, how come you didn't have a bigger church, Joe? How come, you know, you didn't have a huge budget? How come you're not on TV and you're not on radio and all of these things? Well, he said, I didn't call you to be any of that. I called you to preach the gospel to, your, to, to my people, whether 10 or 10,000, and you treat them the same and you give them the same word. You see, from heaven's perspective, Moses failed miserably. Why? Because when he got angry, he disregarded God's direction when he said, Moses, speak to the rock. But he got angry. And when you get angry, you don't work the righteousness of God. James 1.19 tells us that. Be not angry because you work not the righteousness. It's hard to be holy and righteous when you allow angry to take hold of your emotions. He beat the rock. He struck the rock twice. See, he was disobedient to God's word. See, and that's why he failed miserably. We can't fail more miserably than disobeying the word of God. That's what I'm called to do. I can serve, I can give, I can do all this, but if I'm not obeying the word of God, it's all in vain. And we'll see that when we get towards the end of chapter 7 with the two builders we talked about this morning. Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. I did that in your name. And Jesus said, I never knew you. I never knew you in terms of a personal relationship. That's what he means by that, because he knows everybody. But in terms of a personal relationship, you and I, you and I don't know each other. That's why he failed so miserably. His failure was huge. It was so huge that he would not get to see his life's dream of leading the children of Israel into the promised land. Can you imagine? 40 years. And he was almost there. That says a lot. See, it didn't matter what happened all those years before. We have to finish the race. We have to fight the good fight to the very last breath. He didn't get to go into the promised land. He didn't get to lead the people that he, he, he prayed for and he struggled so hard to lead and get them into the promised land. God said, because Moses, you didn't trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. Because of that, you're not going to bring these people into the land that I gave them. Again, the reason that Moses failed so miserably was that he was not faithful to God's word. 
We are to obey it. We're not to intellectualize it. We are not to redefine it. We are not to water it down. We are not to do anything but obey it. God's main call to His people is to be faithful. Moses wasn't faithful to God's Word. From a worldly viewpoint, hey, Paul was very successful. But like Paul, we have to carry out our ministry looking to God for our strength, for our guidance. When opposition and slander and betrayal or disappointment threaten to rob you of your joy and the victory of serving the Lord, remember that no one can destroy what God has accomplished through you. And then one last thing to think about before we finish. For those who haven't yet believed in Christ. Again, notice how verse 7 speaks about the earth trembling before the presence of the Lord. The interesting thing here isn't that human beings who are in a lot more danger than the earth, which really isn't any danger at all, they don't do what the earth does. One of the problems of the church today, we don't tremble before the Lord. We don't have a holy fear of God anymore. We don't have a reverence for God anymore. We're going to face judgment. All will face judgment apart from Jesus Christ. If we don't have Christ, we're going to face the judgment. You see, if we're in Christ, Jesus faced the judgment for us. But those without Christ, those apart from Christ, they will face the judgment. And yet they go on as if everything is okay with them. As if they don't need a Savior. And if that's where you're at right now, I encourage you to learn from, the na- from nature that trembles in the presence of God. Learn from nature, from creation. Even if you don't learn from anything or anyone else, Psalms 20, verse 212 says, Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Is He your refuge tonight? That's the question we need to ask. Is He my refuge? Is He my sanctuary? Is He my tower of strength? Is He the one that I run to for every need, for every situation? Father, we thank You so much for, again, this this beautiful psalm, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. We thank you for your grace, God. We thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. And Father, again, help us to understand. God, nobody's going to go to hell for their sin. They're going to go to hell for rejecting Jesus Christ. Who came to save us from our sin. Not in our sin to save us from our sin, God. And Lord, we just thank you for your love and your grace once again. Because this, this study, is, this message, this psalm shows us again your love and your mercy. The love of Christ for us when we don't deserve it, God. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if you're here tonight and 
You're apart from Christ. That is, you're without Christ. You don't know Christ. You've never made Him your refuge, your strong tower. He's not your Savior. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make make your way towards the steps up front. And I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together. A simple prayer of